Well, good morning. Uh, as the sign says, kindergartners and first graders can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time, um, but I always welcome you to stay and listen to the sermon, too. I'd, I'd be glad to have you, so your option, uh, but you can be dismissed out the back. Um, and if you will open your Bibles to Matthew 18, we're going to continue our series in Matthew, um, our series called Kingdom Come, in which we look at this uh, coming of the King that's, that's not exactly what we expected Him to be. He's, uh, he's much greater than what we expected, um, but he's also much more humble than what we expected. And we looked at that a lot last week. The name of the sermon last week was Humble Kingdom, and we talked about the humble example that Jesus set for us, um, that, that he humbled himself when he didn't need to be, but for our benefit. And he talked about how we can't even enter the kingdom unless we humble ourselves. That, that that's how we get in. That, that membership here is not by us being so great or so wonderful, but membership here is by God's grace, by God bringing us in, us humbling ourselves and saying we can't break down the doors of this kingdom. Jesus has to open the door for us and bring us in through his forgiveness, through his grace. And this week, it's really it's really a continuation of what he started last week. Last week, this, this idea of the kingdom being a kingdom of humility really sets the tone for this week, and we're calling it the limits of grace. And we're going to be looking at the idea of boundaries, of limits. Um, traditionally, this passage in Matthew 18, it's, it's 15 through 35, is, is known as a church discipline uh, passage. Um, and church discipline, a lot of times in church circles, has a connotation of, of throwing people out for being bad, right? And that's what some people think of when they hear the word church discipline. Uh, but we'll see that that's not exactly what it means. We'll try to flesh out what this looks like. Um, but that there are limits. There are boundaries. And so we're, we're looking at the limits of grace grace today. And what I want to do is I want to back up again and, and read the last little piece of last week's scripture and then carry that into this week. So I'm going to actually start reading uh, in verse 12. And then we're going to read through uh, 18, 15. So read with me 12 through 15. And then we'll be kind of spending most of our time on 15 through 35. It says, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, he will not, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. And so that's the context that we, we carry over from last week, from the last passage, that God is a God that doesn't want any of us to be lost. He's continually pursuing us and going after those that wander. And so we pick up now in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at difficult um, text, at things that some people won't want to hear, um, some things I don't want to say. Uh, but Father, we, we pray that your spirit would be enough um, to strengthen our hearts, to allow us to have ears to hear and eyes to see your truth, that we would understand proper limits and boundaries as a church body, um, and that we would do so humbly, remembering that you are the humble king that sets the example for us. And that we stand by that humility in your kingdom. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Well, there was a uh, interesting news story that came out of uh, gave us Turkey, uh, city in Turkey, and it just came out. This was in the newspaper back in 2005, uh, and apparently some shepherds watched in, in just utter disbelief as they saw a sheep just walk off a cliff and plunge to his death. This sheep just kind of walked off a cliff and, and jumped down to his death. And, and the shepherds couldn't believe it as they watched. But then they really couldn't believe it as, as 1,500 other sheep followed that first sheep over the edge, over the cliff, down to their death. There were actually only 450 of them that actually died because by now they're you know they're built up this like giant uh, pillow of, of other sheep underneath. It was interesting. It says 450 of the sheep perished in a billowy white pile. That's the quote from the Turkish newspaper. I guess that was translated into English. Um, but but it's a great illustration of of the reality of of how sheep operate. Um, the first thing that we, we see there is that sheep are stupid. Sheep do stupid things. Sheep will jump off cliffs to their death. Um, that's why sheep need shepherds. That's why sheep need to be led. And again and again throughout the scriptures, uh, Jesus, God the Father in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it, over and over again we're told that we are sheep. We're told that we are sheep, not just you, me too. We're, we're sheep, and, and we wander, and we do stupid things. We, we jump off of cliffs. And not only do sheep do stupid things that can hurt themselves, but for some reason other sheep then follow us when we do something stupid. But when we jump off the cliff, we might have 1,500 others following us, coming right behind us and jumping off the cliff with us. And our text this morning has, has this uh, radical idea that we should actually uh, rebuke each other. That when we see someone jumping off a cliff, we should say, you're, you're killing yourself. Don't do that. And that that's how the covenant community, how, how the community, how the body of Christ is to do life together. That we should actually challenge each other. But when I see you jumping off a cliff, that I should go to you and say, Hey, you're, you're going over a cliff and it's going to hurt you. And you should stop. And, and again, as I said at the beginning, we, we have to keep all this in the context of humility, right? We're, we're not in this organization. We're not members of a church body because of how smart we are. Because, you know, we were too smart to jump off the cliff. No, we jumped off the cliff and, and Jesus saved us. And so then, because we've been saved by grace and because we stand by humility, not even, not even being qualified to be in this community unless we realize we were sinners that needed saving, unless we realize we were stupid just like everybody else and we needed correction, we needed saving, we needed Jesus to grab us and, and bring us back. So, so that's, the, that's, that's how we stand. So when we, when we go to each other, it's not out of some kind of pride. It's not out of thinking that we're better than the other person. It's out of genuine love. It's, it's out of not wanting our brothers and sisters to go over the cliff. And that's, those are the kinds of limits, those are the kinds of boundaries that healthy community has. Being willing to be honest with each other and say, Hey, I, I love you and you're killing yourself. Please stop because I love you too much to see you killing yourself like that. I, I love you too much to see you damaging yourself, to see you banging your head against that wall. And that's what loving community does. And this is, this is very difficult for us to hear because of where we live and when we live. It's America. It's the 21st century. And no one can tell us what to do, right? That's just how we live. We're independent people. We're in a day and age when there is no right and wrong. 
and, and no one should ever tell us what to do. So there's kind of this double bind. Whereas the church, there's, there's this pushback that we should never invade other people's lives. We should never push our, our thoughts or our thinking on other people. And there's, there becomes this wall where it becomes really hard for us to speak into other people's lives. And it becomes really hard for people to take it, to listen when other people speak into our lives. But, but the scriptures say that, that the church is this radical community where we actually learn from each other. Where, where we actually uh, are, are listeners. Where we actually hear the word of God. Proverbs lays this out in several places. I'll just give you three real quick. Proverbs 27.17, Proverbs 9.8, and Proverbs 15.31. Proverbs 27.17 is the famous one that says, Just as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You know, there's sparks that fly there when iron sharpens iron. And that's how we should, should be in community together, that we should, we should chisel at each other. And that's not always comfortable. It's not always pleasant, but that we should, we should seek to sharpen each other. And sometimes that comes through healthy conflict, not a body that's always trying to correct each other and always getting in each other's lives, but humbly and out of love sometimes getting into each other's lives. Sometimes gently getting into each other's lives. Sometimes gently seeking to, to restore each other. Proverbs 9.8 says, Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. It's wise for us to accept rebuke, to accept challenge. And Proverbs 15.31 says, He who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. So, so that's the context. That's the kind of people we should be if we're going to be different. If we're going to be humble, we're going to be listeners. If we're going to be members of this humble kingdom, as we talked about last week, uh, we're going to want to live in the boundaries of a community where we actually challenge each other, where we actually speak into each other's lives. And so I want to kind of break it up into, into three different parts today, because you know I love three of everything. Um, and the first is the limits of shepherding. But what are the limits of shepherding? As we think about this in our, in our body here at Grace Bible Church, what are the limits of shepherding? And that's spelled out just in the first verse here. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So, so we saw last week at the end of that section that, that God is like this father um, or like the shepherd that, that will leave the 99 healthy sheep to go after the one that's struggling, right? And so we should be like our father. We should be like our master. We should be like the chief shepherd in pursuing others. So the limits of shepherding really are, are limitless, that we should all be shepherds. The scriptures are very clear in, in talking about Jesus as a shepherd and, and God as a shepherd and talking about the leaders of the church, elders, overseers, shepherds, that word pastor. Pastor is just a Latin form of shepherd. Okay, Every time in the Bible where it says pastor, that's, that's just a word for shepherd, someone that you know, leads sheep. So, so those three words in the scriptures are used interchangeably for the leadership of a church. Elders, overseers, shepherds, those are basically kind of the Hebrew word elders, the, the Greek term overseer, kind of a superintendent, and then the, the practical term that shows what they actually do, shepherd. We've got three words that are used interchangeably for the leadership of the church. But, but it doesn't just stop there. It's not just Jesus is our shepherd. It's not just the official shepherds, the pastor of the church, or the elders of the church are shepherds. But every member is to pursue each other. Every member. So, so the limits of shepherding are, are limitless. You, you should all be pursuing each other. You should all be looking out for each other. You shouldn't be like the sheep in, in Turkey that see your friend go over the cliff and just follow. 
I mean, that's the classic, classic thing our you know parents always say to kids, right? If your friends jumped off a cliff, would you too? Well, sadly, sometimes yes, right? Sometimes we do. We just follow them. We think, well, it wouldn't really be appropriate for me to say anything. I mean, they're fulfilled as they jump off that cliff. You know, it makes them feel better about themselves to jump off the cliff. And we feel like we can't invade their space or get into their life. And again, we don't, we don't want to become this cultic, you know, trying to control everything we do kind of situation. That's not what we want. But if you love someone, you're going to tell them when they're hurting themselves. You're going to say, I love you, and I've prayed about this. And you're going to do it in private. You're not going to go to your friends and talk to ten different people and bring a whole gang and do like this surprise intervention. But you're going to, you're going to go to your friends privately, not gossiping about them, but directly telling them that you love them, being, being all prayed up, and, and you'll seek their health. You'll, you'll try to, to love them to health. I had a picture here of a, of a shepherd. And, you know, one of the things that shepherds do is they protect the sheep from, from wolves, from bears, from, from wild animals that want to kill them. Uh, they also protect the sheep from jumping off cliffs or falling into holes or getting into uh, quicksand or falling into a creek. Or, you know, they, they protect them. They lead them where they need to go. And that's what this text is telling us in this first verse. If, if your brother sins, uh, go to him. Show him his fault. Show him what's wrong. Help him to see the problem. Point it out to him. I found a story about a, a guy who said that his father-in-law liked to, uh, to go hunting a lot in, uh, in northern California in the mountains out there. And uh, out there, I don't know if it's still this way here, because here everybody has leases, like they pay money to, you know, to hunt on someone's land. But in this story, he was talking about how this, this guy would just go and ask permission. He'd say, hey, can go to a farmer, can I hunt on your land? And usually the farmer would say, sure, and he'd let him go out there at dusk and go hunt on his land out on a big ranch. One time he came to a farmer, and, and this farmer said, well, yeah, but I'm going to have to show you uh, your way around. Um, so I'll let you hunt, but I'm going to have to guide you a little bit. And, and this experienced hunter could have could have taken that the wrong way, right? I mean, he could have been prideful about it. He he could have, instead of taking it with humility, he could have said, "Hey, I know, I know what I'm doing. I don't need to be shepherded along here and shown, you know, where every hill and where every rock is in your ranch. I can I can hunt. You know, I'm experienced. I've been doing this for years." Um, but he was glad that he'd been guided because they went out uh, at dusk uh, and it was getting darker. And when they got out on the edge of his land, he he stood him here. And and he said, uh, look at that right in front of you. Can, can you see that? And it had just gotten dark, and he, he had to wait for his eyes to adjust a little bit. But finally he saw this kind of black nothingness right in front of him, that there was a giant canyon in the middle of his land that he wouldn't be able to see if he hadn't been shown. He needed someone to guide him. You see, sometimes we just don't know the pitfalls in front of us. We don't, we don't know, you know, it's not always an obvious cliff and we're jumping over and we're being just a complete idiot. Sometimes it's just stuff we don't see. Sometimes there are blind spots in your life that you can't see and you need a community of brothers and sisters around you to, to point it out and to say, hey, just, just stop here for a little while. Let's, let's pray about this. Let's look at this thing in your life that I, I don't think you've noticed. And if we have an attitude of humility, then we will be bringing grace into each other's lives as we bring this help. So, so as we think through how to apply this in a real church body, 
in in groups and friendships. Like I said earlier, we we're always trying to encourage you to get involved in home groups because that's a way to establish these kinds of relationships where you confess your sins to one another, where you pray for each other, where you encourage each other. As you begin to get into these kinds of relationships, the, the first thing is humility. What we talked about last week. The first thing to remember is humility that that we are all sinners. That we're not even in this group without being sinners. That's how you get in. That's your qualification, right? Your sin and Jesus' forgiveness. That's how it works. It's not, I'm great and oh yeah, I need a little Jesus too. It's, I'm a sinner. And so I need Jesus to save me, to rescue me, to forgive me, and to bring me into His kingdom. And so we stand by humility and we continue to realize that. We continue to struggle. And so we should have an openness to correction ourselves. We should have an openness and a willingness to learn. Like I pointed out those verses in Proverbs. We should, that's the kind of community that we should be um, striving to, to create here. That's the kind of culture that we should be striving to, to create. The other thing that I think is important as we try to enter into this kind of life together in, in real community, um, in difficult community, is to distinguish the difference between sin and annoyance. Right? And you know the difference between sin and annoyance? There's, there's going to be people that are going to do things in your life that annoy you. And those are just annoying people. Okay? And the Scripture teaches us to, to have long-suffering. That, that's the old-fashioned word for patience. Right? Long-suffering. Scripture says we are to be long-suffering with each other. One of the great ways that my wife and I distinguish this in our marriage is, is we just say, we try to state it in the form of preferences. W- would you please? I would prefer. You know, I, I, it would really help me. I would really feel loved. It would encourage me if you'd do this. You know, that's different than, than you're sinning and you're killing yourself. Right? That's different. You know, the way you squeeze the toothpaste, that's, that's not a sheep going over the cliff. That's just you, you two trying to get along. Okay? So, so in the church, we have to distinguish those two things, too. We have to be clear that, that what this is talking about is sin. If your brother sins, you, you go to them, you challenge them. And, and there's a parallel passage, too, in, in Luke 17 that, that kind of gives a summary of this. If your brother sins, you rebuke him. If they repent, they're forgiven. You know, it's just real simple. Real simple. But it's sin. It's, it's not just annoyance. It's not if your brother squeezes the toothpaste at the wrong side, you know, you go to him and you have an intervention, you pray for him, you know, all that. No, I mean, that, that's a different category. You learn communication. You work that out together. You're, you're patient with each other. You learn to talk to each other, share your preferences, try to be a blessing to each other. And then the final thing I want to repeat that we've, we've already said is that you do it alone. You, you don't just start off with a group because that really feeds gossip. You know, you have a small group, you're, you're in one of these community groups listed in our, in our deal, and you see someone's really struggling with something, and they, and they don't really see it, they haven't confessed it to the group, they haven't confessed it to you, so you don't think they really see it, but you're, you're just a wimp and you're scared to go to them about it, so you try to rally a bunch of other people with you, right? This is how we normally do it. Or you come to the pastor and say, Pastor, you know, this, this guy's sinning and I need you to challenge them on it. That's not, that's not how it works. It says, go to them directly. Go to them. Yet you pray first, sweat it out, pray some more, be afraid, be humble. But you go to them directly in graciousness and say, I I, I may be wrong. I may be wrong, but it looks like there's this... There's this hole you're about to fall into, and you don't, maybe you don't even see it. And here's the scripture that speaks to it. 
and pray for the Holy Spirit to be the convicting agent. When you look up the words like convict and judge and, and rebuke and look up these kinds of words in the New Testament, encourage, exhort, all these kinds of things, uh, most of the time uh, it's, it's Jesus and the leadership of the church that do it. So that's, that's the normal way that it works, that, that shepherds do the rebuking, that shepherds do the correcting. That's the normal way that it works. And in John's, I think it's 16.8, in John 16.8, Jesus even says that that's really the job of the Holy Spirit. Let me make sure I'm giving you the right quote. Yeah, John 16.8 says that when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world of sin. Help them to see that there's sin in their life and that they need Jesus. So really, it is the Holy Spirit's job. It is Jesus' job. But He still brings that down to us and says He wants us to be agents of change as well. So pray that, that the Holy Spirit would do His job. That you would be humble. That you would allow the Scripture to speak. That you would allow the Holy Spirit to speak. And just kind of say, I'm, I'm just a messenger here because, because I love you. And, and I've prayed about this. And I, I could be wrong, but this is, this is what I see that looks dangerous to me. That, that scares me for your sake because I love you. And that's, and that's what it looks like. The next thing that we see then is the limits of membership. The limits of membership. This next little section here, we'll get into a little more detail. In 16 through 20, it says, But if he will not listen, so this is if your brother doesn't listen, um, then, then it continues. It takes a turn. If he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this is kind of the, uh, the law court language of Deuteronomy here. You don't ever convict anybody without, without witnesses. You don't convict someone just on your own idea or what you see. So then you, then you get others. If someone seems to, to still be uh, in rebellion or, or not wanting to repent or not seeing their sin, then you get others. And then it says, he might still refuse to listen, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church, to the gathering, to the body of Christ. And if he refuses to listen even to the wider church, to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I want to stop and explain what this means a little bit. Treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. That doesn't mean uh, be a jerk to them, okay? That doesn't mean be a jerk. I think the best illustration I can find here for us to think about membership and treating someone as a pagan or tax collector is the, uh, the huddle. Um, th- this is a team that we belong to. We are a team. We are members of one body. We are partners together. We are to lock arms and do this Christian life together. And so when it says when we've gone through this and we've pleaded with someone to repent, to humbly admit their sin and and seek grace and forgiveness, and they continue to not do that, that that shows that they they don't think they need forgiveness. They don't think they need a Savior. They don't think they have a problem with sin. And in 1 John 8 and 9, it says there are two kinds of people. There are those that lie and say they don't have sin, and then there are those that confess it, and Jesus is faithful and just, and He forgives them of their sin. Two categories of people in the world. And so when it says here, when you've gone through all this process, lovingly, humbly, pleading with someone to come back in to, to confess their sin, to repent, to, to say, I'm sorry, to seek God's forgiveness, and they continue to refuse then it becomes clear that they're not on the team. They're not a part of this, this Christianity thing that we're doing. That doesn't mean you hate them. That doesn't mean you're a jerk to them. It, that, that's, that's what it means. Putting someone out of the church is not, you can't come in this door. It's you're not a part of this invisible body of believers. 
that, that are a team, that, that are walking together by grace and humility, knowing that we are all sinners and we need God's forgiveness. It means you're not a part of that team any longer. And different churches practice this different ways. Uh, sometimes when it's a, a public figure in a church, the, the church has a business meeting and says, this person continues to sin and continues to say, I don't want to repent and I'm happy about my sin and I, I really don't want to do this Christianity thing anymore. Or they say, yeah, I want to do the Christianity thing. I want to still be called part of the church, but I want to live in unrepentance. I want to live a prideful life rather than a humble life that says I don't, I don't need to be forgiven of the sin. It's not really sin. It's not really a problem. I'm going to deny it. And that sends confusing messages to the world about what, what is the church. Is the church a repenting organization or is the church a do-whatever-they-want-to organization? One of the church, as we've talked about, the way you get in is by saying I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. That's how you get in. And so if you're not saying that, if you're saying, I'm not a sinner, I don't need forgiveness, I don't have a problem, I don't have any problems, I'm, you know, leave me alone, then, then you're not in the organization. You're not on the team. You're not a partner any longer. So sometimes that's, that's, that's a public situation when it's a public leader and you, you have to say, this, this is not what we stand for, this is not what we're about. And, and sadly, this, this person's no longer one of us. The church that planted our church, the way that they would do this uh, if this was a public uh, person, a public figure, is they would say, uh, we've, we've gone to this person, we've prayed with this person, we've pursued this person, and they will not repent. They didn't say you know, what the sin was. They, they weren't trying to slander them. They weren't trying to give them a bad reputation. They were just trying to be clear so that a distinction was made that, that there are people that are in through forgiveness and through repentance and humility, and there are people that are out that say, I don't care about all that. I'm not interested in all that. I think sometimes uh, it doesn't, or usually it doesn't have to go to that extreme. Usually this is going to happen just in a small group where, where you have someone that's kind of drifts and leaves your community, your small community, and together you, you guys say, yeah, we, we need to pray for them They're like we would a pagan or a tax collector. We need to pray for them as someone that needs to repent. They need salvation. They need to find grace. They need to find faith in Jesus Christ. We thought they were one of us, but we see now through this long process that they're not. They're not really one of us. So it's not this kind of shunning, you know, being mean to people, pushing them out. It's a distinction. It's showing the limits of what membership is. Membership in the body of Christ is not just showing up. It's showing up here, but showing up here because you want to be about what we're about. And what we're about is recognizing that we're sinners that need a Savior. And if you recognize that and see Jesus as your only hope, then according to our Constitution, we consider you a member. You're a member. Your membership stands or falls on your relationship to Jesus Christ, your recognition of your need of Him, that you need Him to save you. And if you continue to say, no, I, I, I don't really want that, then we, when we'll call things what they are and say, okay, well, then you're not really one of us. You're not really on the team. And if you run out to the football huddle with a lacrosse uniform on, they'd say, you're not, this is not the game we're playing here. This is, you've gotten things mixed up. We're not about that game. We're about this game. And that's all, I believe that's really all church discipline is. It's not any, anything more complex than that. It's just being clear with one another. It's just being honest. And he goes on to kind of outline what that looks like, that kind of authority that's involved um, in that process. 
Just to treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And, and what does that mean? Not being mean to someone, but saying, this person needs Jesus. Treat him as somebody that needs Jesus. Okay? They're welcome here. They're welcome to visit our group. But, but you're not partners. You're not locking arms with them. You're not walking with them in dependence on each other. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, an echo of what he told Peter, that you have the keys to the kingdom, and the keys to the kingdom are Jesus Christ and the gospel, the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Again, I tell you that if, you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. And I think this is a promise of encouragement, that, that Jesus is going to be with us in the process. When we actually try to practice real community, when we actually try to walk with each other and try to challenge each other and do so humbly, that, that Jesus will be there with us, that he'll help us make it work that He's going to love us through the process, that He's going to be present with us. A lot of times we just think of that as like a prayer passage, you know. Two of us gather together, Jesus is there in a special way with us. And I think there's truth to that, but, but contextually here He's talking about this difficult process of iron sharpening iron, of sparks flying, of us challenging each other, trying to walk in honesty and in humility together in a radical form of, of humility, being, being real partners together. And Jesus promises that He will be there be there with us. It's interesting, too, that uh, this term, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be with them, um, is really an echo of a Jewish term where they would say, uh, wherever two or more gather to study the law, God's presence is there with them. That was one of the popular Jewish sayings of the day. And, and Jesus grabs hold of this and says, it's not just where two or more are studying, studying the law, but whether, wherever two or more gather in my name, in Jesus' name, there I am with them. God, Jesus puts himself in the place of God and promises his presence to his people, a new presence, a new authority uh, above that of the law of the Old Testament, which has been a theme that we've seen throughout Matthew. As he says that really he's the lawgiver. He's the one that leads us. Well, the last thing that we see is the, uh, the limits of forgiveness. The limits of forgiveness. Because, again, we get all twisted up about this, right? And we think this is about condemning. When No, it's not about condemning. It's about honest relationships, standing by humility. But, but Peter still asks this question in 1821. In 1821, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter was really being kind of a forgiveness stud here because the Jews would forgive three times. They'd say, forgive three times and then shun them, okay, and then push them out. But Peter was saying, hey, Jesus, I think I'm catching on to the whole forgiveness thing. Should I forgive seven times? And, and he was probably pretty impressed with himself here. And uh, Jesus says in, in uh, 22, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, that's like billions and billions of dollars, okay? That's a lot of money. So, so a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that they had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Which, of course, he could never do. There's no way he could ever pay it back, but he begged. In verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That's what God has done to us and for us 
by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. We have a debt that we could never possibly pay back. A lot of us you know, have been in credit card debt. I have a picture of credit cards here. And our whole country really is basically broken now through this debt system. We've set up, this, up the system. My wife and I were just talking about this yesterday. We have a whole elaborate system in our country of uh, uh, getting people to buy things they can't afford on credit. And then that kind of collapsed. And so what our government has been doing is, is extending more credit to get people to buy more things that they can't afford, which is another story. We won't talk about that today. But, uh, but we, we're, many of us are in our whole country is in incredible debt. And at some levels, debt that we can never repay. Wouldn't it be awesome if someone just said, you know, I'm just going to take care of that for you. I'm just going to settle the debt. I'm just going to pay it off. You don't need to pay it off. And Jesus says that that's what our Heavenly Father has done for us. He's like this master that has seen this unpayable debt that the person could never pay back. And he's just said, you know what? By my graciousness, I'm taking care of it. I'm canceling it. And that's what he did for us. And it wasn't like he just swept it under the rug. It wasn't like he just pretended it wasn't there. He, he really paid for it. Jesus paid for it in, in his flesh. He took upon himself the full wrath of God that we deserve. And that's what the cross is all about. That we owe this incredible debt towards God and, and Jesus paid it off for us. Not because we deserve it, but because of his graciousness. And so that should give us a humility. That should transform the way we live in this community. And that's where it kind of wraps it all back together, right? With, with last week's uh, look at humility. And, and that this is a humble kingdom. And that Jesus is a humble king. And that we ourselves stand by humility in this kingdom. Because it's Jesus' grace to us that brings us in. Not our own merit. Not our own ability to pay. Not our own ability to get things right. Not our only own ability to be the kind of sheep that never fall into a pit. But knowing that we're sheep that fall into a pit. And so if we ever see our brother about to fall into a pit, we, we would go to him and say, Hey, I love you. You're, you're about to fall into a pit. In graciousness. In love. Always ready to forgive. As it says in Luke 17, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. That is such a nice, clean, simple summary. That's, that's really all this is about. We've got all these steps. We've got this kind of legal language here, this kind of court system that's set up. But that's, that's basically all we're talking about here. If your bro brother sins, bring it up to him because you love him. And then if he repents, you forgive him. And say, yeah, it's, it's all right. And you keep forgiving people. And you keep forgiving people again and again. Jesus says 70 times 7 or 77. And that's not an exact number. You don't go, up oh, 78, you're out. But, but it's, it's, it's an exaggeration. It's a hyperbole to help us see that, that no, Peter, it's not just three. It's not just seven. Just, just keep going. Just keep forgiving. Keep on forgiving him. And I want to close with just the last few verses. It's really a challenge to us in 28-35. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii, that would be like a couple of days' wages. So he'd just been forgiven years and years and years and years of wages, billions and billions of dollars he could never possibly pay back. And this other guy owes him, eh, you know, a hundred bucks or something. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. 
When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called that servant in and said, You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Another picture of hell there. If we don't forgive our brother, we're, we're cast out. It says he's tortured until he could pay back everything that he owed. Which, contextually from the story, we, we saw he could never possibly pay it back. And I said this before, hell is a bad place. Hell is not somewhere you want to go. And again, it's not something our culture believes in. But it seems to be something Jesus believed in. That, that there's a place where you can be with God as humbly, as, as in humility you say, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And then there's this other place where you can be, where you say, I don't need to be forgiven. And I'm not going to forgive other people. This story is not about saying, you can be saved and then you can be unsaved by treating people wrongly. What the story shows us is that guy's debt is not really truly forgiven. If you don't recognize the magnitude of the debt that you've been forgiven, if you don't recognize that Jesus has forgiven you a debt that you could never possibly repay, then you're never going to forgive other people. And if you don't forgive other people, that's a pretty good sign that you never got it in the first place. That you never recognized that Jesus died to take care of you, to fix it. And that's, that's the final limit. That, that you would refuse what's been offered to you. Let's pray. Father, we, we do pray that you would teach us as a body, that you would keep us humble, that we would learn how to challenge each other graciously, and that we would, we would listen. Lord, I think even more importantly than, than being a body that challenges each other is that we would be a body that seeks correction, that we would all as individuals desire to be to be taught, that we would desire to learn, that we would desire to hear people speak hard truth to us. And Father, you know that that's impossible, that, that everything we've learned our whole life in this culture teaches us not to be that way. And so Father, we pray for your spirit to come and to change us, that as we recognize the magnitude of our need, that it would change us and it would soften our hearts. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.